Welcome everyone to Yay Live. This is a loyalty podcast for direct-to-consumer brands. So we are here to help brands navigate the new loyalty playbook to build a long-lasting and successful brand. And for today's episode, we welcome Sian, Director of Partnership at Uni, a financial service platform for e-commerce and media buyer businesses. Uh, and previous to joining Juni, he founded a retail store and was part of Shopify for actually four years. So um, with him, we'll take a deep dive at the present and future of e-commerce. We'll spend some time talking about media spend, the up and downs of advertising platforms. But we also touch upon the do's and don'ts when it comes to building a brand and question if nowadays it's more important to focus on profitability or on growth. But before we dive in and before you actually introduce yourself, I actually want to make sure, and maybe I should have done that before, <laughs> pressing the record button, uh, that I actually pronounce your name right. Perfect. So my name is Kian, uh, which is a, a ropey Irish name and is not pronounced how it's spelled whatsoever, but Kian like a door key. Um, and currently I work at Juni, which is the financial platform for e-commerce. Um, and my role there is essentially the director of partnerships. So I work on the partnership side, working with great companies like Yalo um, and really trying to build a greater presence for Juni and various ecosystems with great companies within them. Cool. And But before Uni, you also had a quite a long experience in retail. Of course, I looked at your uh, LinkedIn. So interesting enough, I think you started also in physical retail and then you worked uh, as a company that we know and like a lot, of course, uh, Shopify. So I guess you have seen the retail space change quite a lot this last year. So would you like to share a little bit about your experience and, yeah, I don't know, anything that you have seen which uh, which you think is Definitely. Yeah, so I think, you know, my background's a bit mixed. So I started off more on the, the brand side as a merchant. So I, uh, I started a business in college, which ultimately scaled to being multi-million pound or dollar, however you want to look at it. And our biggest customer, um, because we did a lot of B2B sales and we're an apparel brand, was Zoomies, which is like a U.S. chain store, 650 doors across the U.S. And they're a great business, super generous and fantastic in a lot of ways that, you know, a lot of the high street retailers aren't. Um, but even then, you know, part of my realization was actually the margins are pretty rough in this uh, B2B wholesale environment. And it was around the time of the, the emergence of like the War, Warby Parkers of the world and the, the first wave of deep sea brands. And so when I got the opportunity to sell that business and exit, I actually started working at Shopify, which to me was like ground zero for deep sea. And I got to really when was at, you know, so I started in Shopify, like God, uh, 2018, maybe. Um, so I spent about four years there. Um, I worked in a variety of roles across like sales and partnerships and my last my last gig there was pretty interesting i worked as the um the market development manager handling all of the investor partnerships so i worked with venture capital and private equity firms across europe and did a lot around consumer funding in that space which i think ultimately kind of led to the transition into the fintech space because you know it's just you know whether capital is dilutive or non-dilutive it's, it's all money at the end of the day um, mm -hmm. and that kind of opened up my interest in the financial world which with e-commerce is front and center in everything you do you know inventory needs money marketing needs money the best businesses have solid financial setups 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is also something that we see more and more, you know, in with our customers that they look at their cash flow management and everything which is related to that way more closely now, especially with the change of ecosystem that we are all, of course, like quite aware of now. It wasn't really a cool topic to talk about convertible cash cycles. I think till really Gymshark started saying that they actually get they pay for goods 60 days after they've sold them and have this incredible financial setup. And then everyone started paying attention and wanting to understand what their their cash flow really looked like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we see more and more solutions also like offering actually more like buying up a letter for merchant or for supplier. So there are a few solutions like that, which are very interesting uh, to follow. And we also have some of them as partners, actually. So um, and, and for us, it's the same, you know, like returns uh, is, a, is a logistic problem, but it also becomes a financial problem, actually, when you have a lot of cash to like, you know, refund to your customer. How do you manage that and how can you actually forecast that? So. Uh, finance becomes like you know one of the core I think um, I would say like things to tackle for direct to consumer brands even though as you say it's not as fancy as in designing products or doing marketing but at the end of the day it's like as core as logistics which is also like not a super uh, super fancy yeah. word logistics is a massive cost base right you know? yep. and that that's before you end up having to get products back you know people always focus on the the outward journey not the the potential return of maybe a secondary package going out and the impact on bottom lines there is pretty exactly. massive. So that's that's where we come in. But today we'll talk more about <laughs> about uni. So maybe you want to explain a little bit more um, to our audience what uni is about because I think it's quite different than, you know, like actually what we talked about, like pineapple later. Can you explain like the value yeah. that uni can deliver to a direct-to-consumer brand? Definitely. So... Uni is a Swedish company, and it is effectively the financial platform for e-commerce brands. So what does that mean in practical terms? Essentially, we cover three key areas. We do day-to-day banking. So you can have your current account, debit cards, and all the standard issued stuff you'd expect. But also with those debit cards, we do both virtual and physical cards. So you can generate as many different cards as you want. You can have a specific Facebook card, a specific... Uh, TikTok card, different ones for different geographies and different currencies, staff cards, expenses, all that good stuff. Um, and, you know, effectively take care of all the standard day-to-day banking issues there. We also offer a technology platform, and really that's built to take care of tedious financial tasks. So we automate things that ultimately take time out of an e-commerce founder's day and really look to make their life easier. So like an example of that is our Google Ads integration where actually we'll go in and pull every single invoice out of Google Ads, which at the moment is a super tedious task. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not only e-commerce. I'm also suffering from that, actually. We also do, like, you know, Google Ads, and I spend so much time on that. So I can relate to that. Part. It generates so many invoices, and you have to go click into each one and download it and then export it. We pulled a lot at once, and then we're set up to export to, you know, QuickBooks or Zero or whatever your accounting package is, and we even export in specific regional formats like Data for Germany. So, you know, we're really about taking care of tedious tasks in a quick, automated way. And then, you know, from there, providing insights and further data about the financial health of the business. And you can actually integrate any existing bank account, payment uh, processor, or even things like PayPal, um, Klarna, et cetera, into your Judy account and get a full financial overview of your entire business. Even if you're using, say, several high street banks, for different accounts, you can integrate the whole lot. And then third part for us 
is we're a capital provider. So we actually do capital for businesses in the form of a credit card. Um, the card itself effectively offers credit lines of up to two million pounds per month. We can do up to 60 day payment terms and we can do some cash back on top of that, depending on the different uh, payment terms selected. And we currently offer that card to businesses in the UK. We're shortly launching in Sweden and we should be in the Netherlands pretty soon as well. So, you know, the general product, we can go anywhere in the EEA. So effectively yep. anywhere in Europe, but for mm. the credit lines, we're a little bit more restricted currently. Yeah, I understand. Uh, super interesting. But actually, I was wondering about the, um, because the cashback, I was reading one of the case study that was actually published on your website. I mean, it can be a lot of money actually when you get like 1% back on your, you know, ad spend. So I was just curious and saying like, how, how is that financed actually? How can you offer that to the merchant and how does this work for you guys? Yeah, so we effectively make all our money from processing. So we don't actually earn money from the customer themselves. So there's no charge to use Juni and we don't make money from you specifically. So effectively there's a fee charged every time you swipe, swipe your credit card. So most merchants will be aware of this because they pay it on their side every time they're taking money from their website to their bank account. Juni makes its money there. So when we make money, we actually deduct the cash back from that from that amount, which is why, you know, not to get too in the weeds, but those those the fee that you can charge differs in different markets. And in Europe, it's it's a regulated fee and it's set to be quite reasonable for everyone. In the US, it's not regulated, which is why you see cards over there, 5% cash back and huge mm. crazy rewards that you don't see in Europe. Um, but effectively, the cash back comes out of there. And for Juni, we offer cash back on both our debit and credit products. On the debit product, you know, we can occasionally do offers where we do actually 2% for a first month, uh, but typically we do 1% cash back. And then yeah. on the credit card, it can really vary depending on the different payment terms um, where, you know, depending on you're on a 30 day or 60 day, it's going to vary quite heavily as to how much cash back is coming your way. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I was just curious to know like how the model was working on your on your side. Because as a merchant, it's like super appealing, of course, especially when you have like a high, a high media spend. Um, and I guess that this like cash back, the reason for that, the, the main driver for you to offer that was to help merchants improve their uh, profitability on on ad spend, right? Exactly. It definitely helps. You know, metrically, it helps. I think with cash flow, it helps, and with profitability, it helps. And I think. You know, when you look at metrics, people typically don't factor the negatives into their ROAS or MER or any of those figures. Like they're not factoring in the cost of process and the payment. But actually, in our case, maybe people might want to do that because we're building 1% um, margin into every pound, dollar, euro spent. And because we're also doing the different currency cards, you know, we can make payments in whatever the specific currency, the different platforms are charging. So it can save money there as well. And um, but really for us, it's just, it helps e-commerce businesses thrive and get more money back into the business and it's worthwhile. Yeah. But how, how have you seen like the overall like media, you know, spent evolving in the industry? Because just now we hear a lot about, you know, the fact that, you know, customer acquisition costs are increasing. It becomes super more expensive to actually, you know, uh, spend on, I mean, acquire new customer with Facebook ads. And I mean, that's a topic that is coming back and back, you know, and we've been discussing it a few times with different guests uh, in this podcast. But I'm also curious to hear your view because you work super closely with merchants actually doing media spend. So 
how do you see the the trends in this industry? Do you see merchants investing more in you, maybe like um, social media, which are less crowded? Uh, I guess you also guys work with TikTok. I mean, we can spend an hour talking about that, but yeah, shoot whatever you have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, look, frankly, the cost of acquisition for customers, just it's increased. There's no denying it. Um, and that's there's multiple angles to that, but I think the data is harder to come to. The platforms are crowded and you know with the ios changes it's harder to understand customer behavior and all the stuff that used to be on hand to make these decisions i think mm. i definitely see people diversifying their spend into different platforms and i would say you know big three for us are google facebook and TikTok. um and then you've got lots of secondary platforms yeah facebook you, inst- you include instagram it's like meta yeah yeah and i, I would include, include youtube under google as well um so you know, basically Meta and then any Google properties and then TikTok would be our our top three platforms that we see. And in all honesty, you know, when you go beyond those three, obviously some people are going to see huge success and it's, it's going to check for their platform, but I don't typically see massive results that allow people to hugely divert spend away from those key platforms to another, to another uh, platform. But I think Really, people are changing how they approach the ads. There seems to be much more of a, a focus on gathering first-party data and much more of a focus on influencers and particularly on TikTok, you know, where I think obviously the, the current generation of D2C brands are pretty well-versed on the platform, but maybe for more legacy advertisers, it's a real pivot in terms of creative. So working more closely with influencers who are TikTok native and know how to create content that resonates on that platform has become... A, a much stronger play and then really i think people are trying to fill that data gap however they can and i see triple whale come up all the time as a solution that really helps fill in some of the blanks and you know we we see more and more customers use triple whale as a solution and um, so I, I think not to be too negative about it but really people are are trying to fill gaps that previously they didn't have to and that's yes. got a corresponding increase in spend i don't think there are any necessarily silver bullets out there at least that i can offer that turn yep. the situation around but i think you know overall people could still acquire a customer profitably and um, and then you know i think as we move away from the days of venture-backed growth at all cost and we'll make a profit on the third or fourth order realities hopefully some of the the crowdedness of the, the space calms down a little bit where you've got yes. more and more comfort companies where they actually have to make a net profit on each transaction yeah yeah interesting when when you were talking about influencer do you mean that for example like on tiktok if i'm a direct to consumer brands it's must it might be more profitable or like interesting for me to actually go advertise via an influencer than running my own campaign is that what you're saying exactly and i think even you know what we're seeing for the customers or for the, the actual merchants is that they're using these TikTok natives as content creators for their own channels as well. Okay. Because TikTok still has organic reach in a way that yeah. you just don't really see on Instagram anymore. And mm. the potential there is massive. I mean, the product's huge. It's really taking over as the preferred platform of choice for you know the, that kind of 13 to 18 bracket. And I think that's where the eyeballs are going to be for the for the the next gen of D2C brands, if not the current ones. 
Yeah, yeah. Do you see like still the difference of like type of customer like, between like who is on TikTok and who is on Instagram? I don't know. I, I always tend to think that, you know, millennials and like are more maybe on Instagram and Gen Z is more like on TikTok. But I guess everyone is catching up on TikTok now. What do you see? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a TikTok user. I think age probably plays a yeah, major... I, I was not that. daring to say I, I'm not, but I'm not either. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely not cool enough. And I think, you know, there's, it's it's probably one of those like lines in the sand. Like, you know, I think younger people actually do a lot more of their viewing on YouTube as in their yeah. casual day-to-day viewing in a way that I would say do on Netflix or a streaming mm. platform. And I think like it's that kind of transition from Instagram to TikTok where, you know, it, it's becoming their main social media platform. I mean, I had a friend who was calling his, his kid and kid wasn't picking up. He got home. He was like, show me your phone so I can show you how many times I've called you. And he picks it up. And on the bottom bar, there's no phone. There's no text message. There's no email. There's no Instagram. It's like TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, you know? And yeah. he has to flick back through like three pages and there's the phone icon in the background somewhere. And he was like, that was a wake up call, right? Like these kids are not texting. They're not phoning anyone. And they're on TikTok. That's, that's where they're at. So is that you reach out on TikTok <laughs> to call him home? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You should post a TikTok, get home. Um <laughs> uh... Cool, but I think was was also like very interesting in what you said earlier is you know like the the change of uh, ecosystem and the fact that till now you know merchants were ne- not necessarily expecting to be profitable before like the third or fourth purchase, which is also something that we have seen. But now, so now you see a trend of brands trying to be more profitable from the first purchase. Is that more because of the investment um, ecosystem has changed, or is it also linked to? The combination of the fact that actually, you know, customer acquisition costs are more expensive, like, what do you think is the main driver? Well, I think there's been an exit of firms from the space, right? You know, like, purely consumer-driven investors in Europe were always reasonably rare, um, but they're even more so now. And while Web3 was so buzzy, I think a lot of people pivoted to that, and a lot of consumer firms added SaaS that catered to their typical consumer base. On top of that, and probably saw better ROI on their investments in that, which in turn made it harder and harder for a DTC brand to go out into the market and raise. Um, so I, I think really it's it's firms not operating in the space. And then you also, again, coming back to someone like Gymshark, where you see a company yeah. that was in the, you know, probably closing in on a, a billion in revenue before they raised anything and did their first raise from a huge PE firm like General Atlantic. Um, and ultimately had more control and did it for strategic reasons. I think a lot of people look to someone like Gymshark and when they see those really great fundamentals and a founder or, you know, a founder group owning a hundred percent of the business up until that kind of crazy revenue, that becomes a playbook in and of itself. So a lot of founders are coming out there saying, I'm going to own as much of this as possible, hold on to equity as much as possible until I absolutely have to part with it. When I part with it, I'm going to part with it for very strategic reasons. Like yeah. maybe I want to hit the US market and I, or something like that. And I think that's reflected in the, the financial options that people are pursuing because when you look at people going to revenue-based finance. Yeah, I was about to tell about that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like really the, the key pitch that, you know, whether you're taking on all your spend through a bank loan, credit card, and revenue-based financing solution is that it's non-dilutive. 
right? Yeah. Equity is the most valuable piece of the business. And it's really great that founders are looking at equity as something that they need to hold on to for as long as possible, rather than see huge percentages of business right away in the hopes mm -hmm. of getting that payout that lets them hyper scale. And I think these businesses that are approaching things where, you know, they're going out into the market, they're getting revenue based financing, they probably have a line of credit and various other things, but their unit economics are solid. You know, they're running a good disciplined business. Yes. And in this current economic climate, I think most people are still going to struggle. It's going to be a hard time, but businesses that are built on profitability over growth, they're probably going to have a much easier time of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting what you're saying. And I think it's actually something that we also see in the SaaS industry. And I think that you guys also see it even um, for, uh, for Union. And I think, you know, it's like uh, I was reading on, on LinkedIn, I don't, know, don't remember who was saying that, you know, bootstrapping is cool again. <laughs> and I think in a way it's quite healthy to be actually able to look at, as you say, like, you know, your unit economics. If your unit economic doesn't work, like investment is not going to solve the problems. Uh, so tying back again to, you know, like yeah, increasing off acquisition costs and things like that, I think, as uni is here to help you know brands be more profitable and yellow is here to do the same i think it's a very interesting space to be in just now because we are here to basically help brands strengthen their financials uh and of course it's good to grow but it's it's good to grow when you can actually sustain your grow and have something like healthy uh so i think it's like yeah. super uh super interesting um yeah change of uh, paradigm that we see just now yeah no, I definitely agree. I think the move towards bootstrapping is ultimately a net positive, right? I think it's better for founders. It's better for the, I mean, there's an argument that the average millennial's lifestyle has been funded or subsidized by VC for the last 10 years through yeah. Uber and Deliveroo yeah. and grocery delivery services that'll give you, you know, 75% off your groceries for the first few orders. I think we're back to reality where you have to pay for the things you own. Um, and that's reflected in the day-to-day -day business environment, right? So these businesses are ultimately more disciplined. You know, they're growing based on the resources they can generate within the business itself, not from external funds that are looking for a payday in two, three, five years. Yeah, exactly. And I think now I was also like thinking about it, especially in, in the e-commerce industry, uh, because now we have seen like such a big, big increase during COVID and like a lot of companies have, you know, served that way. But now e-commerce is also like, you know, staggering and, you know, people want to go back to store. So it's been like a lot of like, uh, you know, hot air also like in this space, which now make it like a little bit maybe more down to earth when it comes to like how do you finance your growth. Yeah. We really see like the growth of Shopify like as a super exciting thing uh, during COVID. But now, of course, like everyone has heard, you know, about like, Shopify, like Klarna, laying off a lot of people. Um, and how do you see this, you know, affecting the um, the platform, the merchant life? Like, do you see this affecting negatively the industry, or do you think like it is healthy as you know for the for the merchant side that we just discussed? So I think like when you look at e-commerce growth, it's still nets out massively positive. We may not see you know pandemic level growth yeah. continue, but I would say it's an absolute outlier. I mean. I think I'm incredibly bullish on Shopify and actually think it's undervalued currently. I think yeah, clearly, during yeah. a recession scenario, it's incredibly well positioned to scale even further. No, it's a good time to buy Shopify shares. Definitely. Not that I'm providing any financial <laughs> advice to anyone, but I think you know it, it's a business that uh, thrived during a previous recession. And actually, you know, when you look at Shopify, 
the level of tooling you get for $29 a month as an absolute startup is pretty yeah, nuts, yeah. you know? Um, and the fact that you can tap into just about every service that previously would have required like dev work and lots of complexity. I think e-commerce is probably going to see another growth phase as, you know, look, there's load, there are layoffs happening. I think that's just a reality and they're happening yeah. in the tech world. When you see lots of layoffs in the tech world, I think you also see lots of innovation. You see lots of businesses forming. Um, and when you hear a lot of founder stories, a lot of them start with a layoff, right? So I, I would like to think that we're going to see a bunch of cool, lean D2C brands start up that have really great unit economics. And you know, whatever the economic downturn looks like, those businesses, as they emerge from it, will be super strong and set up to scale. And um, so, you know, businesses that handle themselves really well during whatever economic downturn we're potentially yeah. about to experience in a boom period will will just come out swinging. So I'm actually super excited. I'm bullish on e-commerce. I, I just don't see any legitimate argument to say that it's not a space with continuous growth in it. Um, whether that's massive, absolute hyper growth like we saw during COVID, probably not. But I think we're still going to see a transition to the online space of most retail. Um, I think the big challenge is meeting the grocery store order, right? So like what has been subsidized by VC in the form of like a, a, a Gettier or whatever delivery service, bringing that online, I think is very challenging. Bringing big box retail online is very challenging and we, we just haven't seen good examples. And also on the high end, I don't think anyone's figured out how to do that luxury experience online, right? And I don't think we can replicate beautiful spaces online quite yet, but you know, all these things are, are opening up and I think there's smart enough people out there to solve them. There's still so many areas where, you know, e even taking B2B e-commerce, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. we barely scrape the surface there and, yes. and none of the mainstream platforms do it in any meaningful way. So, you know, that's an entire customer segment that is not well served online right now that could be unlocked. So overall, I'm, I'm bullish on the whole space. I think we're going to see massive innovation and hopefully some interesting brands. And I think coming out of an economic downturn, we'll go back to growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm 100% with you. It was to open the conversation, but I think that, you know, the space is, is still like, the industry is still quite immature. Um, and as I was coming, like, you know, from physical retail before, I thought like, you know, yeah, e-commerce was so advanced. And then you realize actually how much, how much left there is to do still to improve the space. And I think that's also like, you know, the entire interest of being in that space. Um, and one thing that you mentioned, I also like totally with you is like the B2B um, e-commerce uh, is a super interesting. And I mean, we see some very interesting company, like I probably heard about Fair, like this type of, you know, marketplace, like how to actually, for a, merch, for a brand who sell like multi-brands, how to optimize your assortment. Uh, and I think this is actually, Tying back to like the podcast theme, which is more about direct to consumer, I think it becomes also like very necessary for direct to consumer brands to start actually selling in physical stores and selling B two B. And this is where I think like to fuel the growth at some point, you actually need to go physical and you need to go B2B again, even though the margins are lower uh, and there are like some challenges, but I think there will be like a lot of improvement in this space as well. Um, so I think there is like definitely like a lot of things which will happen uh, in this space. Huge, 
huge growth on the B2B side, because when you look at D2C now, it, it's not direct to consumer. I mean, you could look at a large big box retailer, whether it's in Europe or the States as an acquisition channel and a profitable one at that, because ultimately, if you sell your goods in a you know, large big box retailer that can get it out to smaller regional towns and cities, and somebody purchases your product for the first time there, there is a pretty good chance their second purchase is going to be on website. And, you know, when we're looking at DTC right now, it's it's much more omni-channel. I think you've got B2B sales, you've got marketplace sales, you've got, a, you know, not just the standard Amazon stuff, but also, you know, looking at channels like Fair or even going into something like uh, Walmart or TK Maxx or even Etsy. I think all of that stuff is key to the D2C setup right now. So having a tool to manage B2B at an effective level is going to be key here, but I don't think one necessarily exists quite yet. So I'd be interested yeah. to see how that space gets occupied. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But also I think, you know, with the change in the market and the lack of VC funding available, the barrier of entry has reduced, right? Because if you wanted to go compete with one of these mega brands, like a, an Allbirds or something like that, the barrier of entry was that multi-million dollar seed round that got you set up to do the marketing blitz and push outwards. Whereas now, when the reality is more bootstrapped, the competitive landscape has changed and it's actually more accessible for an absolute startup to come in and compete legitimately with uh, other brands. So, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly bullish on all of this. Yeah, that's that's very interesting angle, actually, you didn't think about, um, that the lack of VC funding was actually lowering the barrier to entry because you could think that it actually increased the barrier to entry because you, do, you, you don't have access to financing like you had before. So that it, it is because you always need to like at least some when you start a brand, you need to like pay your first, you know, supplier, run your first campaign. So you need to have a little bit of cash on hand to just like get started. And that's also why we see like a lot of, you know, crowdfunding platform uh, helping out. But usually you always need to pay even before you actually run and get the money from the crowdfunding campaign. Um, and I want to do like add also something on, on what you said earlier, you know, about like basically using physical retail more than other discovery channel like physical retail is also shifting a lot uh from that side but i definitely think that it is it can be like a very strong discovery channel for brands uh, to reach out to new um customers and in another podcast episode we were actually talking with a brand called murkvist selling high-end uh shoes for men um, they are Swedish-based company, but there was the guy was saying, the founder was saying, Sebastian, that the fact that they have a physical store in, in Stockholm gives confidence, even for someone who would never visit the store, who is located in the US. But just the fact that they actually see, you know, on the website that they have a store in one of the nicest districts in Stockholm just gives them confidence to actually buy from. And they think, oh yeah, it's not like this online store who is just like, you know, shipping product from whatever uh, area in the world. So there is definitely something there uh, which uh, which is interesting as Alan Chong. Yeah, I think it's it's viewing it as complementary and not competitive, right? Because you've got that experience where having a storefront in a key neighborhood in a key city is an image builder for the brand. Yeah. You know, I come from a fashion background and if you're looking, if you get into that key tastemaker store in a key city, it's not really the, the invoice that you send to them at the end of the the quarter that matters. It's actually the people it's being exposed to and the credibility it gains from being associated with the brands in there and the brand of the store itself. So, you know, I think we can look at physical retail as a revenue driver, as a 
brand awareness tool and all these different things. But I think it's all of these are just a slice of the DTC pie and yeah. what is like a more modern setup because pure web sales alone, I mean, if you can get revenue maxed on that, fantastic. But I think all these different channels are key. Do you actually think that the fact that customer acquisition are increasing for online retailers are pushing them more to be on your channel? Yeah, I mean, I think we were in a previous scenario where, you know, return on ad spend was really, really strong. So it didn't make sense to divert any budget away from that channel because it was just so profitable. But I think now as things have become more difficult, it opens up the need to start thinking about omnichannel in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, whether that's wholesale, whether that's marketplaces, whether that's multiple different ad platforms, whether that's community and investment in yeah. community. Yeah, just one more question, actually, when talking about uh, Instagram and Facebook ads. One thing that I experience as a customer when I see ads uh, on my Instagram and when I click on the ads is that it seems like it's not optimized where I land on the website. And that is super frustrating. And I, I heard about a company in France like you was trying to develop a product uh, which was doing that and finally pivoted. So they don't doing it for some reason. But I really feel that there is a big uh, missed opportunity for brands to optimize where the customer land when they click on the on the ad. Have you ever heard like heard about that or have you ever experienced that yourself or heard any solution which is improving that because I feel it's a very bad like you have a good ad then the customer clicks and then tough you know yeah so many people still send traffic to a product page or a collection page and aren't building customized landing pages and um, I think you know it's probably few if any who are doing landing pages per campaign you know or like really tailoring landing pages to creative from the yeah. ad set um, yeah. I mean, it's obviously a lot of work. So, you know, if a SaaS solution was to pop up that could somehow, you know, integrate the uh, the copy from your Facebook ads manager account and to start looking to tailor landing pages based on that, it could be really interesting. But I think customization on page when people actually land on website is, yeah. is not where it needs to be for most brands, um, especially with the amount of budget they're putting into these ads for something to for someone to like land on something super generic and not tailored beyond the standard user experience is a really missed opportunity. I think there's a real gap in like integrations into ads manager itself, like even being able to to do something like kill an ad campaign because inventory sold through, you know, yeah. in real time. Yeah. Um all the like the ad innovation I see is outside of the the platforms themselves. So like when you see something like Triple Whale pop up, you know, it's not inside Facebook or even, yeah. you know, companies like Drop who are doing really interesting stuff with Instagram DM automation. Um, it seems to be outside of the ads management tool and platform. So, you know, that's something I think is really interesting where if we could see the ability for more tools to integrate with the actual ad management platforms themselves, we could see real innovation in the space. Yeah. Yeah, because I also find like the, you know, the ad manager platform, so like unintuitive, even like because we run them like for uh, for our SaaS products. But I think it's like, so I can imagine for brands when you have like, you know, 100 different campaigns, depending on the markets and on the, and the collections, like, of course, you cannot have like 100 landing pages, but I just felt like the experience there 
was lacking. Uh, and when you see like all the costs, you know, soaring, you just feel like you want to optimize your conversion. Like it's good to have a click, but then when you have a click, you really want to convert it. You just don't want to lose a customer. Exactly. But even like building specific mobile versus regular landing pages and all these different factors, I think the amount of work in running like a fully optimized ad- advertising setup is pretty huge. Um, but it's like, you know, there's quick wins there, even in just implementing a landing page, whether all campaigns are going to that or not, um, and, and just moving away from linking directly to a product or a collection page. Yeah. So clearly another space to innovate uh, in yeah. the e-commerce space. <laughs> that's the exciting thing, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are a lot of things to do. That's what we said. Um, maybe just like uh, to use a little bit more of your expertise in partnership, uh, because you've been uh, working now for uh, partnership before at Shopify, now at uni. But more if we think like as as a brand, uh, and we have discussed that with some of the brand founder we received on that podcast as well, like... How do you see like brand collaboration and brand partnerships helping brands to actually you know reach out to new audiences? Like, I guess there is some parallel that you can do with like how you guys run partnerships at uni with how a brand can actually run its own partnership. So, do you have like any general like piece of advice for a brand who would like to maybe like you know look at expanding expanding their audience by partnering with other brands or other like creators or artists mm. or whatever it can be actually. So I think it's it's really about being strategic about it, right? Like the the collaboration or partnership is you know, when you're when you're looking at it from a a DTC focus or an e-commerce focus, I assume it's product driven, but the product should be better than the sum of its parts, right? Um and it's it's using them to unlock new markets, using them as potentially a testing method to see, you know, is this something we should expand into? So it's like, you know. If a fashion brand is considering homewares and they partner up with a interior designer to create certain products in their existing uh, catalog that are customized and then promote it to that audience, they can get a good read as to, oh, well, maybe we should or shouldn't make this move. And you know, I think using partnerships as an expansion tool and a data gathering tool is a really interesting play because, it, you know, whether it's working with an artist who's got a huge presence in a certain space and brings that audience to the table for you uh, so that they're customizing your product or, you know, going to another product creator and putting your spin on their product. It gives you that opportunity to get out there and say, well, you know, we really think this space might be interesting for us to organically grow our way into that. It's going to take a lot of time. We also don't have any data or justification aside from thinking it would be interesting. And this is a profitable way of doing it, right? You get a product to sell, you get the exposure to audience, and you get the data from all of these things. And then, you know, if it does justify the next steps, you're set up to really run. Um, And that's where I think partnerships are really interesting. And in an ideal world, both partners would be thinking that way, right? So that there's, there's mutual payoff and you're both invested. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it's, it all will have to be a win-win, but I think it's super interesting what you're saying that to test basically new markets or a new product assortment, basically try it out yeah. with a partner who is present there and then see uh, with data how it works before actually making the investment. I think that's super exactly. interesting. And even with geographical expansion, it can help you, you know, potentially avo- avoid the cost of localization for 
a certain timeline by having a native speaker who understands the culture as a somewhat of a brand ambassador for you. So it's like yeah. we're moving into the Spanish market or the French market. We're going to assemble a team of five creatives as partners. We're going to work with them on collaborative products. We're going to put them into the market together, promote them to their audience. And then we'll make a decision as to whether France is a market that we're really going to invest in or Spain is a market we're really going to invest in. Yeah. So I think viewing it more strategically that just, hey, they've got a big Instagram following. Let's see what happens. Like having a clear purpose and desired outcome from the um, from the partnership aside from just pure revenue. Super interesting. Yeah, now you made me think like a brand that I think is super cool. Maybe you know it's a Swedish brand called CDLP. They do actually underwear yeah. for men. Um, and they did like a super cool campaign with a French singer that I really like, uh, Sébastien Tellier. And I think that was actually colliding when, when they sort of like launched in the French market. That was like, now nah, I read it with another uh, angle when you said what you just explained. Uh, and for me as a French person, I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And I know like, you know, all the men in France, like, like Sébastien Tellier and it's like super cool. And he was like super niche, of course, with also like the type of customer that CDLP is after. So that was definitely like a great shot at the press did. Exactly. And it built credibility and presence. And they made money while they were doing it. Yeah. You know, the payoff's pretty huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So all the uh, brand founders here listen to that uh, great piece of advice. One of the best I think we got on this podcast. Uh, I think we will wrap up here. But thank you very much, Kian, for joining the podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Um, I know that I think you guys recruit a lot just now, but I think also in your team. So if you want to like give any uh, details uh, about yourself, the career page, uh, just shoot out. Maybe we might also have some SaaS uh, uh, people listening to the pod. Uh, Drew's actively recruiting, obviously, and we're looking for key talent, um, particularly engineering and sales. So you can find our careers page at juni.co forward slash careers. I'm also on LinkedIn, more than happy to talk to anyone um, about the company and run through, you know, why it might or might not be for them. Um, so I'm always happy to get outreach and you can email me, kian at juni.co. Thanks for a great episode, Kin. Um, your experience first as a retailer, as a start of your career, then your time at Shopify, and now your transition to fintech at Juni has been a great addition to the podcast lineup. Um, it was super interesting to pick up your brains um, on the change that e-commerce has been through and how the future will look like now that brands look for profitability from the very beginning. So. I think this episode has also been a little bit of an eye-opening because we generally stay uh, more in the direct-to-consumer space uh, in this podcast. But to spice things up a little bit today, uh, we branch out to B2B sales and also how physical stores or even like occasional pop-up store uh, become important for brands, far more than actually just for sales. Uh, and it was, of course, exciting to get your point of view on media spent in the industry and all the highs and lows of advertising platforms. And last but not least, we'd also touched upon the current financial stage and how it might affect the e-commerce space, uh, brands and software solutions in the next few years. So this episode actually marks the end of season one of Yay Live. It's been a pleasure to sit you down with all our guests and to talk to them about their brand, their project, and learn more about experience in the field. This is it for now. So thank you very much for listening. And of course, stay tuned for season two, which is coming soon. Have a good one. Bye.